Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, May 29th, and this is the weekly market update. As always, the disclaimer, anything that you hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay. This week's reality check, really interesting developments uh, in the last week in the oil industry, such that uh, I'm getting more and more bullish on oil, and I'll tell you why. First of all, you know, obviously, we've been bullish on oil. The thesis originally, and still to a certain extent is, for many years, there's been a lack of investment in finding new reserves, new resources. Um, that was because of the shale industry, what happened, uh, with the, basically all the investment going into shale, it kind of peaked and now it's rolled over. You know, we had the COVID situation that tanked demand that really had people pulling their horns in. There's no new investment. And now we've got the coup de gras, or at least as some pundits and commentators think, the ESG movement, and that the fact that demand for oil is going to go away. This was punctuated this week with several developments with three large oil companies, which I'll now go over. And I'll put uh, links to all these articles in the show notes. Recent developments with several large multinational oil companies are screaming buy oil as future supply gets strangled. That's what I put. That's what's going on here. So what happened at Exxon? Um, Exxon had a shareholder meeting board meeting, annual meeting, I guess, in a tiny hedge fund that had about $50 million in assets, uh, dealt a major blow to ExxonMobil Corp on Wednesday, unseating at least two board members in a bid to force the company's leadership to reckon with the risk of failing to adjust its business strategy, strategy to match global efforts to combat climate change. Quote, we are sending a new we are sending new board members seasoned in managing change in the fossil fuel industry to help out put the company back on track. And this Dean Napoli guy is the New York State, I think public employee pension fund manager or something. So what basically happened here is you had a small activist hedge fund. It got together, it got the support of other shareholders, BlackRock, pension funds, and it basically got itself a couple of board seats. Uh, there's still voting going on or they're tabulating votes. They may get an additional board seat. And so what do they want to do? You know, Exxon was one of the few of the large international integrated oil companies that said that it really, it was slow playing and, and it wasn't wanting to do like what uh, BP and Royal Dutch Shell were doing. And so it was actually targeting production growth. You can throw that out the window now. Um, the pressure's on now. The zeitgeist, as we've talked about uh, in the past, is accelerating. And these companies are owned by shareholders. Many, most of them are pension funds. And the pension funds are staffed with people that are in the ESG. And so they're going to vote you know, the way their conscience dictates them to vote. And so they're going to ask these oil companies not to make new investments in new uh, reserves. And as we've said before many times, 
the oil and gas industry is an extractive industry. If you're not constantly investing capital in finding and developing new reserves and resources, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, going to go out of business. And so the focus, I guess, will be to channel cash flows into more uh, ESG compliant investments. I guess that means renewables, climate change, hydrogen. I don't know. And, uh, but that won't mean putting money into more uh, reserves, trying to find and develop new reserves. So again, I'm not going to comment. This is basically is the thesis of the heads I win, tails I win more. Oil's not going away. Uh, And it seems to be, I don't know if it's a strategy. I guess you could, if you want to sit there and think about it enough, it could be a strategy among policymakers to to try to get the price of oil up and therefore that will crimp demand. Um, I don't think people, I've said this before, I don't think people understand how, how inculcated and how dependent an economy is on reliable and cheap energy. That's why we use fossil fuels. And I'll go into that further when I talk about coal and some slides later on in the presentation. But this is just one thing. I mean, so if you're not going to be investing in new oil reserve Exxon, because you have these activist shareholders, then um, why, you know, they're going to, I guess, invest in other things. You know, the oil companies went through this back in the 70s. I think, as a matter of fact, Exxon owned like a semiconductor company and they bought uranium reserves and they just got into all these businesses that were not core businesses and their businesses, their core businesses suffered. So I guess the, the main thing I wanted to focus on here is, and I have two other, there's two other companies that had similar things happen, which I'll go over in a minute. This means less oil. Okay. Um, when you raise the cost of something, when you restrict the supply of something, yet the demand isn't restricted. And I don't see any, any, any type of legislation or anything like that that's happening to crimp demand. You know, I'm going to give you like a quick synopsis of a couple anecdotal things I see. I just, I'm building a plant just outside of Rosenberg, Texas. Rosenberg, Texas is a town on the Southwest corner of the Houston Metro complex. Okay. It's a, it's turning from farms into bedroom communities and, uh, you know, it gets freeway access so you can get to jobs in other parts of Houston. And 20 years ago, this thing was nothing but cotton fields. And, you know, it, and I don't, it's, it's pushing down the freeway, more development, more building. I don't see any indication of planning going on for a future that means no less or no oil. You know, the other anecdote is, I came down to my house in South Texas for the Memorial Day weekend from Houston. I was driving down to the Rio Grande Valley. Of course, South Padre Island is down here. It's a major tourist attraction for people. And, you know, you have, it's, you don't, once you get to Corpus, you don't really have interstate anymore. You have like a two lane divided highway that they're trying to make into an interstate, but it's kind of like a state road. It goes through the King and Kennedy ranches. And I'm going south on two lanes, and it's not, it's packed in traffic going south for the Memorial Day weekend. You know, people are on the South Padre, the travel trailers, 
the bikes on the back of pickups, the coolers, the lawn chairs, you can see all this stuff. And so I know it's anecdotal. I mean, I don't have the numbers. I don't know if these numbers exceed last year or in 2019 numbers. I don't know. What I'm telling you is that people are traveling. This is what we thought would happen. Demand's not going away. Demand is coming back ferociously, as a matter of fact. We're seeing it in the airline statistics, uh, pent-up travel demand. Um, and I, so if you're not going to do anything, you know, if we were serious about climate change, put a dollar and a half gallon tax on gasoline. That will reduce demand. And you could use that money, I guess, ostensibly, if you were a politician, to have your Green New Deal or lower the deficit or whatever. I don't see that. What I see is, you know, these things to lower supply, you know, that's what, why the drug war failed. You know, the interdiction of drugs just raised the price to the end user because there were still addicts and we are addicted to oil. So I'm not going to get into a philosophical discussion of if this is a good idea or if these activists are going to have any impact. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that Exxon, who was one of the, you know, they weren't outright champions of their industry, but they at least weren't knocking the industry that laid the golden egg. And they were actually trying to increase production. In previous forecasts, they were talking about increasing production. That's out the window now. So we'll see what happens and how far down this road they go. But you're seeing, I mean, we have pension funds, you have BlackRock in there, trillions of dollars under management. You know, they're, fu they're fully ramping up their investments in renewables and green. So they're going to do everything they can. I mean, I, I don't know. It's like the head swallowing the tail. So um, maybe it's just complete madness. Maybe there's a method to the madness. I don't know. But I don't know why you would own an oil company if you were against oil. Why not just sell it out and put your money into renewables or whatever, hydrogen or ca carbon capture or whatever. But we'll see what happens. Um, this, is, this is pretty major, too, and I expect more of this. Um, Shell was ordered, Royal Dutch Shell. They had a court case go against them. They were ordered to deepen carbon cuts in landmark Dutch climate case. Quote, a Dutch court ordered Royal Dutch Shell to drastically deepen planned greenhouse gas emission cuts on Wednesday in a landmark ruling that could trigger legal action against energy companies around the world. Shell said that it was, quote, disappointed and plans to appeal the ruling, which comes amid rising pressure on energy companies from investors, activists, and governments to shift away from fossil fuels and rapidly ramp up investment in renewables. Quote, the court orders Royal Dutch Shell by means of its corporate policy to reduce its CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030. That's nine years from now. You basically cut your... CO2 emissions by 45% with respect to the level of 2019 for the Shell Group and the suppliers and customers of the group. So what? So now that these people have gotten traction against one of the oil majors, do you not think that there will be more actions like this around the world? Probably. They've tried it in the U.S. Cases have failed to this point, but they're, they're emboldened now. So there'll be more pressure from groups on, on money managers, more court actions. This all is leading to what? Less supply is what I'm trying to get. So I will get to the actual part of this. One more uh, vignette, and then we will get to how this is actionable. And there's more. 
Chevron shareholders backed a call for the company to cut emissions from the end use of its fuels, with 61% supporting the petition. Another resolution calling for a report on the business impact of achieving net zero emissions by 2050 was backed by 48% of the votes cast. Quote, the question for oil companies is when and how much do they reduce oil and gas production in response to investor and social concerns? So I put some notes in here of how we're going to get into the actual part of this now. Like I said, I'm not going to comment on if this is good, bad, whatever. It's, it's not good for future supply. Uh, the, you know, most of the oil is supplied by the, um, in the world by the national oil companies and OPEC countries, but these independent international oil companies like Shell, Total, BP, Exxon, Chevron, the whole, you know, Oxy, these companies supply a relevant amount of oil to the world. Okay. And they're being attacked now. So let's get into this. You know, here's my here's my bullets. This is extremely bullish for oil longer term. As supply supply gets cut, there is not going to be consummate demand cuts. There is not going to be consummate demand cuts. I do not see any legislation anywhere trying to restrict. If you if you if the if the if the administration was serious, they would propose a surtax on every barrel of oil or on a gallon of gasoline. Significant. That would cut demand. Of course, it would. The midterms would would they would get crushed in the midterms and they would be out after four years. So I believe this is trying to be done incrementally. Boil the frog, right? Turn up the heat little by little, attack supply, hope the you know the price goes up with demand slowly in a controlled manner, I guess, and then there'll be a natural transition. What will happen is in commodity markets, as we've talked about before, that's not how things work. If the demand for oil, for example, let's say just for illustrative purposes, if the demand for oil is a million barrels a day, the million barrel plus one, that plus one barrel sets the, that's, sets the price for the other because that's the demand. So you can have a slight undersupply of one or 2% or a slight oversupply of one or 2%, and that can significantly infect the price of the commodity. Those that... That incremental oversupply or that incremental undersupply can have a material effect on the price of a commodity. So we're putting ourselves into a situation where we have billions of people around the world that are emerging from poverty into the middle classes, trying to attain middle class, trying to achieve the lifestyle that you enjoy, a first world lifestyle. It's not going to be possible because the resources don't exist. This is going to cause a problem. They're not going to go from burning animal dung to a Green New Deal in sub-Saharan African countries. That's just not how things, that's just not how energy transitions work. That can work in telephones. Instead of, you know, having all these telephone lines and wiring it and then going to mobile, you can jump from no phones to mobile because it's actually cheaper and makes sense. It's not the same in energy. Energy transitions don't work that way. They're more complex, more capitals in, involved, a whole host of reasons that we don't have time to go into. And so as we strangle the supply and demand now is coming back, tremendously coming back. You know, and I want to hear about it in the comments, guys. What are you seeing on this Memorial Day weekend? This kicks off the summer travel season. We've got mask mandates. We've got lockdowns gone in the U.S. We've got everybody chomping at the bit to go somewhere and do something, get out, get out and do stuff. And they've got the money to do it. 
What are you seeing out there? I just give you an anecdote of what I saw of nonstop traffic at nine o'clock at night going to South Padre on this straight line road from Corpus that's a hundred miles long. I mean, you come up over a little bit of a hill and look ahead, it was like head or taillights as far as you could see in both lanes. Now the traffic was rolling pretty good, but it was a lot of people heading south. What are you seeing in your part of the country? What are you seeing at the airports when you're traveling? What are you seeing when you take your kids to Disney World? I'm curious to hear in the comments. So how is this actionable? I, I do not, let's go down the list. Is OPEC countries going to do this? Are they going to cut supply? No. Are the Russians going to cut supply and, and tell their oil companies to reduce CO2 emissions? No. Is China, we know China lies about this. They're not going to do it. Is India, we've already shown you quotes from the Indian energy minister. They're not going to scale back. They, they're going to industrialize. They're going to raise standards of living. The, the Indian energy minister said that they have the right to do that, just like we had the right to do it. So I've, I've liked Russian oil companies for a long time, guys. Uh, you know, they're cheap still. And what I think you're going to see is, you know, you just saw recently, I think it was either BP or, or Shell was trying to s s divest some of their oil uh, fields, properties. We've talked about this before. But I saw this another article again this week. They can't get anybody to buy them except for really discounted prices. I can guarantee you the Chinese or Gazprom or Luke Oil or somebody will come in and buy this stuff. They don't have a problem. And so, you know, I'm writing down here and I listen to podcasts and I listen to the news and I heard, you know, there's a recognition happening with policymakers. You know, we had the the wrestling match with the Trump administration in China about currency and about Chinese dumping stuff into the U.S. and all the jobs going to China. And now what are we starting to see a manifestation of? The next challenge is everybody saying is, how are we going to get these other countries to comply with this green agenda, with lowering CO2? Because they know they're not going to do it. You know, uh, it was on a podcast. They were interviewing a guy that was, we were talking about this. This is going to be the next battle. So what are we going to do? We're going to commit economic seppuku. We're going to put our economic, our workers, our businesses at a disadvantage. We're going to lower standards of living here to lower trace amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. The rest of the world that's developing isn't going to follow along. And so then we're going to do what? Send in the seventh fleet? Threaten you with war if you don't do it? Put sanctions on you? That's what they're talking about doing, sanctions. We're going to have economic sanctions. You know, you start putting sanctions on people. The other countries per perceive this as, you know, steps towards war. Are you prepared to have a thermonuclear war over CO2 emissions? Are you prepared to blockade uh, the Strait of Hormuz to not allow uh, Iranian oil to go to China? Are you prepared to blockade Venezuela to keep that oil going for to China? Will China just sit there and take that? Does the U.S. have the ability to do that? I mean, the Europeans are not interested in having any wars. They're completely pussified. I mean, they, they, you know, Nord Stream pipeline that's going to supply all the natural gas from Russia to Germany, they wanted that. They didn't care what the U.S. said about it. Because in the, the bottom line is always the bottom line. That's how I look at this. And what I think is going to happen is that we are going to have an energy crisis in the next couple of years that's going to blow 
2008 out of the water as far as how high oil goes. And then people are going to wake up. That's what's going to wake people up out of this stupor and this nonsense. You've already got gasoline in, in uh, I saw a thing on Twitter, I think, pushing $5 a gallon out in California. Okay, we're not, we're not even at $70 WTI yet. What happens when we get to $100? we are going to have $100 oil again plus. So I like the Russian oil companies. They're not going to go along with this. I like uh, smaller companies that can maneuver, that can buy assets, okay? Now, I don't know if we have to watch, you know, I mean, I like the Canadian oil sands companies. You know, they're still exporting. They're still doing things. There's some carbon. Uh, we'll have to watch it, though. You know, there's, there's this carbon emissions taxes coming, all kinds of fun stuff that's going to come to, to further try to hamper supply. But demand is not being hampered. Like I said, everywhere I drive, people are building out further and further. More stuff's being built, more highways, highway construction everywhere around Houston. You know, nobody's saying like we should all have more dense living in light rail. No one's talking like that. So this is all self-inflicted. It doesn't matter how stupid we think it is. It doesn't matter if the policy won't work. It won't work just like the war on drugs didn't work by trying to crimp supply. All it did was raise the prices because people were addicted. Okay, nobody, they should have shifted. The focus should have been on treating it as a disease and lowering the amount of addicts and things like that. They didn't do that. So you just lower the supply, the price goes up. That's economics 101. The same thing's going to happen here with oil. And I think it's... It's going to be a tremendous opportunity. And as the world comes out of this lockdown, as the world gets back to some semblance of normal and people want to be have their lives back, they're going to go back to doing what they like to do. Moving around, having fun, getting experiences, traveling, and that's going to be higher energy demand. Heads we win, tails we win bigger. Wanted to talk about this. Uh, shipping container rates, top $10,000 from Asia to Europe. The cost to move goods in a shipping container to Europe from Asia shot above $10,000 for the first time on record, an index showed, underscoring the pain inflicted on exporters and importers struggling with stretched supply chains. The Drury World Container Index released Thursday showed the rate for a 40-foot container from Shanghai to Rotterdam rose to $10,174, up 3.1% from a week ago, and a 485% jump from a year ago. The composite index of eight major routes rose 2% and was 293% higher than a year ago. Both were the highest in records going back to 2011. In the U.S. and elsewhere, many shippers of cargo have had to pay in excess of $10,000 per container in this year's tight spot market for seaborne freight, where deals with ocean carriers include hefty surcharges to ensure on-time delivery or guaranteed loading. You know, and we're getting into the summer, late summers when people start ramping up for Christmas, restocking. You know, businesses in the U.S., retailers, what did they do? When we had the COVID lockdowns and the economy blew up, they didn't just keep importing more goods or ordering more goods. They ran down their inventory to preserve cash. Now you're in this demand is hitting while inventories were low. You're trying to restock and meet demand. So you have this tremendous surge of demand and you don't have the infrastructure or the capacity in the shipping industry in order to take care of this. Now, you're already seeing orders go in for 
bigger container ships. It's already starting. What's interesting is, is that a lot of the container shipping stocks have not moved as much on this news. And what's interesting is in container shipping, it's not the same as like um, moving oil where it's done in a spot market on a short cargo. These things are usually done for long periods of time for sometimes two or a year, two, three years in advance. So rates are getting locked in. Cash flows then are getting locked in. I'm not suggesting you go out and buy container shipping stocks, but I would say they have moved, but they haven't moved uh, as high to reflect, I believe, in my mind at least, what we've seen recently in these markets. So something to keep an eye on, another opportunity, and another indication of inflation. These, uh, who ends up paying for these higher shipping rates? You as the consumer, that's who. I'm going to put a link to this. This was a, I think it was a Bloom, yeah, it was a Bloomberg interview with the CEO of Freeport McMoran. And it's about eight minutes. I'll put a link to it. Very good. Uh, he talks about copper demand. He talks about the fact that copper, the copper deficit that's coming, the fact that there's been a lack of investment and there won't be sufficient investment to meet the demand, at least as he sees it. And I think it's just a really, it's, it's really insightful from a guy who is in the industry with one of the largest copper producers in the world. Okay. And he doesn't talk too much about Freeport. He just mentions it a little bit, what they're doing, but he talks a lot about the industry. Now, can, can this guy be accused of talking his own book? Yes. He mines copper for a living. What, what else is he going to talk about? But that doesn't mean he doesn't have insights into what's happening in the copper market. So something to look at. Another thing to keep an eye on, which I've talked about and read about, we've got several things happening in South America that we need to keep an eye on as it relates to the copper market. We have the election coming up, the runoff election in Peru between Fujimori and Castillo. I think that's his name. Uh, the one, the Castillo guy being the left-wing Marxist communist that wants to, to, I don't want to say nationalize, but raise the taxes and royalties on all the mining companies and spend it for social goods. And then Keiko Fujimori, who's more of a free market right-wing uh, candidate. The problem with her is uh, I think she's out on bail right now because she was in jail for, for uh, she was under indictment for some type of malfeasance. So this is what you're dealing with, right? And they've had like five presidents in the last two years or something in Peru. Why does it matter? Well, Peru is a very large copper producing country on the upswing, or it was. If you get a left-wing government in there or somebody that's having all this rhetoric, uh, people are going to be more less likely to want to invest and put capital to work if they think it's going to be confiscated. Now, the situation in Peru is that the Congress, uh, I don't think he, well, I've shown this, he doesn't appear to have the support in the Congress to do what he wants to do, but still rhetoric means something. People are not going to, you know, things can shift like they did in Chile recently, where we've had the Communist Party now have a resurgence and left-wing parties have taken control and are now going to rewrite the Constitution and guess what they're going to try to write into the Constitution. More and higher royalties. The lower house already passed a higher royalty regime, okay, and tax regime for copper. It's confis confiscation levels, like 75% tax rate when copper's over like $4 a pound, I believe. So what does that mean? Well, these are, you know, together, I believe they're like 30% of world copper supply. No one's going to invest in those countries 
if they're going to confiscate the profits. And we're seeing more and more of this around the world, guys. Get ready for it. You know, people want to count their money before before they have it, but you got to be prepared now. It's time to start looking at jurisdictions, right? Look at the Fraser Index. It will tell you which countries have the best are are best uh, most friendly to mining. Let's put it that way, because what happens is all these countries are desperate for money. Uh, nobody cared about the mining industry when copper was a dollar eighty a pound last year. Now that it's four fifty a pound, it's time to confiscate all the profits. Okay. And you can't just pick up, you know, a billion dollar investment in the DRC and take it with you when you, you know, get on a plane at the airport. So these things need to be taken into consideration. What is the point? The point is copper demand's going up in the heads we win, tails we win bigger scenario because of the green movement, because of electrification. Copper is the key element for that transition. And there is not enough of it. And so you have to be aware. Uh, you know, I'll give you a big company right now you could buy. It has met coal and copper, tech resources. It could probably double from here. I own it in my uh, personal portfolio. You know, I don't have it in the main AIA portfolio because we're looking for 10 baggers in there. But tech is a good company. It's, it's well run. It's a very large Canadian mining company. And it has two things that we like right now, copper and met coal. It's in safe jurisdictions. But this is something to watch as we go forward because resource nationalism is going to be uh, coming to the fore as prices for these commodities go up and governments are desperate to get revenue. So I want to talk a little bit about coal. This is uh, coal prices. You can see, uh, you know, $50 a ton, bottom down here. Now we're pushing, this is the Newcastle price, I think in Australia for thermal coal. Uh, I think this is an Australian prices. Um, hundred, you know, you're, 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 you're over a hundred, pushing $120 a ton. Look at this recovery. Why? Because everybody's opening up and energy demands coming back. And a lot of these mines were closed. People were laid off the supply chain, you know, bulk carriers are under a lot of pressure. Now there's not enough bulk carrier ships. A lot of things are coming together. And so no one's paying attention to this, right? Oh, coal's dead. It's gone away. Do not. <clears throat> Maybe it will be gone in, in a few years. I don't know, in 20, 30, 40 years. I'm telling you right now, there's an opportunity. And from a recent S&P Platts article, more bullish news on coal. And I think this is the last, last slide. Coal, the coal rally continues to make concerns on supply availability to meet demand. Seaborne coal prices have been bullish over the past year, largely rising from pandemic lows last spring as global energy demand resumes and economies strengthen. You know, the, the, um, the forecast, I believe, from the World Bank or um, the IMF is for 5.3% world growth this year. And to, in order to have growth, you have to have energy. And we haven't transitioned yet to green sources fully, so coal and oil in natural gas is where it's going to come from. Quote, people need to get overpriced and become more concerned about availability, said a U.S.-based coal consultant. Quote, this market is so inelastic. The demand for energy in Q3 has spiked and they can't find the coal. Coal is telling the market something is wrong, said the U.S. consultant. The demand for energy is increasing faster than supply. Again, the demand for energy is increasing faster than supply. It's starting to smell like 2007. In 2008 is when oil topped out at like $140 a barrel. 
I don't remember what coal prices were. Let's see if we can see from this previous chart. Yeah, okay. I mean, we had coal prices topping out at uh, over $130 a ton during that last run. Do we get there again? It seems possible. Do the stock prices of the coal producers reflect this reality? No, they do not. Did we add a coal producer to the AIA portfolio uh, last month, I believe? Yes, we did. It's already up. It's had tremendous move already. Uh, there's, there's a lot of action available left here. It's very actionable. And uh, again, coal is telling the market something is wrong. The demand for energy is increasing faster than supply. Okay, so this is the news I'm leaving you with. The economies are open up and around the world. Uh, the U.S. and China are ahead of the game. Europe is happening. The rest of Asia is going to happen. We're going to have, into the end of the year, rising energy prices. It's going to be inflationary. I don't, still don't know if it's transitory or not, but all I know is you have a window of opportunity here. You know, a lot of these oil stocks have already moved and doubled, so even some of the bigger ones. Like we talked about Suncor uh, that I've talked about publicly. Uh, Antero Resources now I think is like over 12 or $13 a share. Uh, we were talking about it when it was like four or five bucks a share. Schlumberger, the world's largest oil field services company. I think uh, it's up 60 or 70% since we talked about it publicly on this channel. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is this is where, it, and what are we seeing with the growth stocks? They're rolling over. Value is outperforming growth now. And we've saw this before 10 years ago. These things go in cycles. So sell your Peloton, sell your zoom sell your at-home stocks and buy energy stocks that's there's a rotation happening that's what's actionable okay guys uh i just wanted to answer one question i mean some people have asked me to try to shorten the videos make more videos i tried it guys i work a full-time job i'm a one-man operation i just try to do one video a week I'll try to do two a week. I mean, I'll, I'll make an effort, but it's it's kind of difficult for me to do. I mean, I'm really busy uh, just trying to get my newsletter together. I have to send a newsletter out every month. That takes a lot of research. That's things 3,500, 4, 4,000 words a, a, a month. Um, I have to research new companies. I have to get this weekly talk together. I mean, I'm a one-man operation. So I try to put out the content as best I can. Um. You know, if I get to 100,000 subscribers, I'll quit and do it full time and I'll put videos out um, and I'll, I'll really amp this thing up. We got a long way to go. I haven't broke through yet. We're getting steady growth. But, um, you know, maybe eventually I break through. I don't know. And I become uh, I can go do this full time. I would like to do that. But uh, right now I have to work a job. I have a career. I have other things going on. And like I said, I don't have a staff of people and I just show up in front of the camera and, and read off a teleprompter. I have to do all the work myself. So um, I'm not complaining. I like doing it, uh, but uh, just recognize that uh, I can't meet the demand. I know you guys would like to hear more of this stuff. I know you're thirsty for the knowledge. I like researching this stuff. It's, it's what I enjoy doing. It's my passion. This is fun for me. It's not even work. I enjoy, I look forward to doing this every Saturday. I enjoy seeing the comments. I enjoy, I mean, I'm making something and putting it out to the world and people constantly tell me that they find value in it. And that, that really, it means something to me. It's like, I've done something, you know, if I die tomorrow of a heart attack, I've left something in the world. Something, if you research my name 20 years from now, 
there'll be videos out there. I've done things. I've done something. So, and I think I've helped a, a few people. People have told me that I've helped them, that they've they've started their quest for education. They kind of understand now that how how to try to be successful in markets, and that means a lot. That's been the whole goal of this thing. So, um, like I said, if somehow I can get to you know where this is sustainable as a way of life for me, then I'll do it full time. But right now that's just not possible. I'll do the best I can. And, uh, that's, that's how it is. So I felt like I needed to, you know, tell you guys that, cause I know some people have asked me before, it's been a common question. It comes up every couple months or so. Hey, can you do more videos, shorter videos and, you know, try to cover more topics. It's just, it's just not possible at this time. So that's it for this week, guys. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the support. Um, getting, you know, this is going to be a tremendous time of what's happening, tremendous opportunity, uh, tremendous moves are getting ready to happen. There's a lot of shifting seismic events under our feet and you have to be prepared because most people have no clue what's going on and they're going to get run over by this. But, uh, I think that, um, you know, uranium in the longer term is looking superb and this energy thing for the rest of the year, I think is really going to surprise people to the upside. So, uh, take note. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week.